Despite my appearance and my friendly looking face and my warm, chubby, round body, I'm actually a trained killing machine. Okay, I am actually a second degree black belt in Taekwondo. Taekwondo is an ancient martial art in the Korean tradition. As you can see, uh, this was me back in the day and I'm flexing up in my household. And I remember the first day I went to Taekwondo class, I was a young little lad. And I remember my master, the very first thing that he did before he taught us anything, is he did a demonstration. And my master was no joke, he never smiled. In the, in the eight years that I was with him, he never smiled a single time. And that first day as a little kid, I came into Taekwondo class, didn't know what to expect. He gets up in front of the class, he grabs a brick, a solid red brick. And I swear, it's like a movie, he just goes, Dah! and it breaks over his head. And all of his kids are like, oh my God. He grabs a glass bottle, and he breaks it over his head afterwards too. He puts out a concrete brick. And then, and literally, like we are all waiting in anticipation, he puts another one on top, and he puts three on top of each other. And he looks all of us in our eyes. He says, if you follow me, if you train under me, you'll be able to do this one day. And he breaks the three bricks. And he started doing all these demonstrations. And he said, listen, if you stick with me, one day you'll be able to do all these things. So as a kid, you know, I'm, I'm looking at him like, yes, I want to be a trained killer psychopath just like you. You look so cool. And lo and behold, I made my ranks up through Taekwondo. I started as an orange belt. As you can see, I moved all the way up to red black belt, which is the one right before. Look at this cool ceremony. They made kids line up. The lesser belts, the green belts, and the purple belts lined up with swords just so I could walk through my ceremony. Lomio, eight years later, I think it's eight years, maybe it's five, I don't know how old I look, but I get to black belt, and for my demonstration, in order to get second degree black belt, you have to break through a concrete brick. And look at me. You, what you don't know is I didn't break those bricks, actually. <laughs> I had to retest three months later. Um, but I found myself being able to do what he did. You see, the end goal of apprenticeship is that eventually, ultimately, you will be able to do what your teacher does. An ancient apprenticeship was actually characterized by four stages, and I'm going to throw them up really quick. The first one is, I do while you watch. Exactly what my Taekwondo master did. He said, watch. The second is, I do while you help. The third stage is, you do while I help. And the fourth stage is, you do and I Watch the stages of an ancient apprenticeship. Now, if you've ever been to Coldstone in San Mateo, anyone been to that Coldstone by Century Theater? That was my first job, y'all. I was an ice cream scooper at Coldstone. That was so good. But I was I remember the first day at work, my manager came in and she's like, All right, I need you to learn how to make waffle cones. And so she said, Just watch me. Don't touch anything, you're gonna ruin it. And so I watched her. And so she did while I watched. The next time she said, Mickey, come over here. Now you're going to help me mix the batter. And so I'll do while you help. Eventually she said, all right, Mickey, it's your turn. You do it, and I'll just help you. I'll, I'll be on standby if you need me. And so I started making the waffle cone, and I messed up a little bit. And she came in and fixed it and made sure I didn't burn the edges. And then eventually we got to a point where she says, you do it, and I'll just watch. I'm a hands-on. And this is the stage of apprenticeship that we go through as Jesus, not completely because Jesus just doesn't leave us. He always helps us. But there comes a point in our apprenticeship where we're actually called to do what Jesus did. 
After following Jesus for some time, there came a point where the disciples were commissioned by Jesus. All right, you go out now. You go heal the sick. You go cast out demons. You go feed the hungry because you have been with me long enough. And there comes a point in our apprenticeship to Jesus, in our discipleship to Jesus, where we are called to go out and actually do what he did. That we are called to continue his work and his mission here on earth. And here's the beautiful thing. He doesn't want to do it without you. He doesn't want to do it without us. The dream from the very beginning was that he would invite us into his work. Gardener God inviting us to cultivate the earth together. Many of you know I was a children's pastor for many years. And kids are very well-intentioned, but they always get in the way, especially when they try to help. And I had this one kid that would follow me around every single day when I'm setting up chairs and setting up tables and setting up markers. And they would ask, what can I do? How can I help you? And I would let her help me. But she would do such a horrible job of setting up the crayons and the tables. I'd have to go back and fix her mistakes. But I was so delighted because it wasn't about getting things done. It was about doing it with the one that I love to be with. And this is God. He doesn't want to do it without us. See, without him, we can't. But without us, he won't. His heart from the very beginning was to cultivate the world together for us to join in the work of God. If we go to John chapter 14, 12 through 14, this is what Jesus is commissioning his disciples to do. He says this, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. I don't know about you, but growing up, I would always read this and be like, greater things? And think, what the hell does greater things even mean? I mean, he's freaking Jesus. I'm not. What does greater things even mean? Because he did some pretty great things. Like, in our modern day context, is it turning La Croix into White Claw? Or is it transforming KFC into Chick-fil-A? What do greater things look like for us? When Jesus says greater things, he's not talking about an increase in the quality of his works. He's actually talking about an increase in the quantity of his works. That as the earth is more and more filled with followers of Jesus and people are coming into faith, that more people would engage in his mission, that kingdom activity would exponentially increase in the earth because there would become more followers of Jesus. But the problem today is that most of us have relegated the calling to participate in the works of Jesus to pastors, to missionaries, and to super-Christians. Come on, y'all know the super-Christians. Super-Christians in our community that were like, okay, they are called to do the works of Jesus. They're called to do the ministry. They're called to do what God has called us to do. When in actuality, every single believer from front to back is called to engage in Jesus' mission. You and I are called to continue in his work. But the question is, what was his mission? What exactly was his work? Now, John Mark Homer, former teacher at Bridgetown, he broke it up pretty well into these 10 categories of what Jesus actually did while he was here on earth. And I just want to throw it up really quick. These are the 10 things that Jesus did. This is the works of Jesus, the mission of Jesus while he was here on earth. The first is preaching the gospel. 
Second is teaching the way, teaching the ways of living with God. The third, healing the sick, casting out demons, eating and drinking with people far from God, doing justice, peacemaking, praying, prophesying, and standing up against religious and political corruption. And all of this is captured in this key Phrase, this key moment when Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray in Matthew chapter 6. He says, Our Father, hallow in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does it mean to continue the work of Jesus? What does it mean to join in his mission? What does it mean to join in in doing what Jesus did, it means that wherever we go, we are called to help usher in the kingdom of God. That is, wherever we find ourselves, we ask, what would it be like here if it were like heaven? What would it look like if my anxious workplace looked like heaven? What would it look like if my fractured family looked like heaven? What would it look like if my broken city looked like heaven? What would it look like if heaven were here on earth? And so our prayer becomes on earth as it is in heaven. When we engage in Jesus' mission, we pray on earth as it is in heaven, in San Francisco as it is in heaven, in Google as it is in heaven, in Blue Bottle as it is in heaven, in my family as it is in heaven, in my game chat room as it is in heaven. That is the mission that we are called to. This is the work of Jesus that we're called to continue. But church, hear me. These aren't just words of passivity or resignation. You know, sometimes prayer becomes this excuse to relinquish responsibility to the world, right? Like, we pray, God, would you help me love that man asking for change at the freeway entrance? And then we drive on by. We pray, God, would you help all the starving families in our city? And then we eat our toast and $17 overpriced mimosa. We pray God end injustice in our nation and we just keep on scrolling. We place all the responsibility upon God to do what he's actually called and empowered us to do. No, these words of prayer aren't resignation. They're not deferring responsibility. These words are actually prayers of participation. Your kingdom come. Your will be done, God, through me. That God, let me be the vessel through which your kingdom comes. Use my hands. Use my voice. Use my resources, my presence, my life to see your will done here on earth as it is in heaven. God, use me to love the man asking for change at the freeway. God, use me to help feed the hungry in my city. God, use me to be an agent of, injust of justice and shalom. You know, during the Black Lives Matter movement, the height, when things were really tense last year, one of the biggest criticisms against Christians was that we offered a hell of a lot of thoughts and prayers, but a lot of my black friends were tired because they were empty because there was no action behind them. We prayed a lot, but we didn't live our prayers. We didn't embody the prayers that we prayed, and so they didn't carry any weight. Hear me, church. Our prayers aren't just meant to be prayed. They're meant to be lived. They're meant to be embodied. We are to become, in a sense, the answers to the very prayers that we pray. We're praying for God to, to help those experience homelessness in our city. When God's saying, I've already answered that prayer. 
That's you. You're the answer to that prayer. We're praying, God, help lead my coworker to you, to Jesus, to knowing about you. And God's saying, I already answered that prayer, yo. It's you. You're the answer to that prayer. Too often we place all the responsibility upon God to do what he's called and empowered us to do 99. I pray that we would, we would not become a people who just pray our prayers. I pray that we would become a people who embody and live our prayers. That is what it means to engage in the mission of Jesus. It's not resignation. It's participation. This is what we're called to. But understand this. It's going to look really different for every single one of us. Maybe preaching the gospel in your workplace doesn't look like standing on top of the desk in the middle of the room and just giving a three-point sermon on Paul's letters to the Corinthians. Maybe it looks like sharing a story during lunch with your coworker about how God has blessed you that week. Maybe standing up against religious and political corruption doesn't look like flipping tables and whipping people out of the church building. Actually, maybe we should do that. Maybe that one, that one we'll keep. But, but it doesn't look the same for all of us what it means to engage in the mission of Jesus. Now, in the 90s, there was this worldwide phenomenon that revolved around these four magic letters that just, it just ushered you into the kingdom of God when you would think of these four letters. And everyone would get these bracelets with these four letters on them. You know what they were? W, W, J, D. You know what's funny? This is a picture from 2020. These are making a comeback, y'all, on Amazon. We get like a 20-pack for like five bucks. Maybe we should get one together. What would Jesus do? And then whenever you found yourself in a situation where you don't know what to do, you will look at your bracelet and you will say, oh, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do in this situation when I'm fighting with my spouse? What would Jesus do when I'm annoyed by my coworker? What would Jesus do in this moment? And while I believe it's a worthwhile question to ask ourselves, we have to keep in mind also that Jesus was a first century male Jewish rabbi. I think if we were to sit with a first century male Jewish rabbi, we wouldn't have a lot in common. It's a very different time, a very different person. And when we oversimplify this question, what would Jesus do to me? We have to literally do what a man living in a radically different culture and time did. We don't do it justice. What I'm driving at is following Jesus looks quite different for the single mother working two jobs than it does for the young millennial tech bro working in San Francisco. That following Jesus and doing what Jesus did looks, looks different for someone living today than it did for someone living in the first or second century. A more appropriate question that I think we can ask ourselves is not what would Jesus do, but what would Jesus do if he were me? What would Jesus do if he were an engineer at Google? What would Jesus do if he was an Asian-American woman living in San Francisco? What would Jesus do if he was an Enneagram Type 7 ENFP Hufflepuff? What would he do if he were you? What might he want to do in your workplace, in your family, in your neighborhood? And if we throw up that list of the works of Jesus, what might the works of Jesus look like in your life to preach the gospel? 
What does it look like for a barista to teach the way? What does it look like for someone in class to heal the sick? What does it look like for you to eat and drink with people far from God? What does it look like for you to do justice? What does it look like to be a peacemaker, to pray and to prophesy? What would Jesus do if he were you? We don't contextualize enough what God would do in our times. People are like, what would Jesus do if he was on dating apps? Like, how would he resist temptation? What would he do? How often would he swipe? Guess what? We don't know. And if any theologian tells you this is what he would do, they lie in it. We don't know what Jesus would do. And so we have to ask instead, Holy Spirit, if Jesus were me, living in my time, in my situation, in my circumstance, what would the character of Jesus compel me to do? What, what would the Spirit of God lead me into? He would have you delete Coffee Meets Bagel. Maybe download Hinge. I hear great things about that app. Anyway. Just kidding. Um, I just want to leave you with three principles um, in line of what we're talking about. And yeah, we'll just go from there. The first, to do what Jesus did, uh, we have to understand that doing flows out of being. If we were to be honest, uh, many of us who have spent considerable time in the church have a complicated, if not traumatic, relationship with this idea of doing things for God. I was with the worship team before service, and we're like, you know, Asian Americans, we, we're kind of blessed because we're super hardworking and sacrificial. Like, if you go to any church and, you know, they need people to come early to help set stuff up, uh, the Asians show up, right? It's weird. And I feel like we have this great work ethic for the kingdom, but, but I feel like many of us who have grown up in Asian American churches have been overworked, have experienced burnout. How many of you have experienced burnout serving in your churches or have, been, have felt used by your leaders or been overworked? I know some of you are thinking, Pastor Mickey, you overwork us. No, I don't. Trust me. I'm so easy to be under. I'm just kidding. How many of us have attached our sense of self-worth to what we can do or accomplish for God? I think if we're going to be honest with ourselves, most of us have tried to do what Jesus did, only to find ourselves falling short or falling away. Which begs the question, is there a way to do what Jesus did without destroying ourselves by our good intentions and efforts? Is there a way to do the work of the kingdom without burning out? Is there a way to actively respond to injustice, poverty, and pain without destroying ourselves in the process? I think the thing we often get wrong is that doing the works of Jesus, the problem isn't the work itself. It's the order in which we place that work. Hear me, church. I think... Oftentimes, engaging in the work of Jesus is first and foremost about who we are becoming before what we are doing. In other words, our most effective strategy in reaching the world is wrapped up in the kind of people we are being formed into. The best witness we have as a church is not our music or our programs or even our teaching or our coffee, sorry, coffee bar. It's not that. Our best witness is a transformed life. The peace we carry, the joy we exude, the love we embody. Church, I don't care if you could preach your ass off. If you are not a good person, you have missed the point. 
I don't care if you could exposit scripture and you know all of these things. If you are not being formed into the character of Jesus, becoming more patient, more loving, more kind, you have missed the point. The best witness to the world that we carry is a transformed life. In other words, the quality of our presence is our mission. You know, some Christian circles doing often comes at the expense of being. In other Christian circles, being often comes at the expense of doing. Come on, you all know that church that you used to be a part of where the f- emphasis was always on doing more. Doing, doing, doing. Uh, some of you know in college, I was not even a staff member. or I was just a volunteer, and I would be at church on Sunday mornings at 8 a.m., and I would leave church at 10 p.m. I would do, we had 8 a.m., children's ministry, teacher's meeting. 10, 10 a.m., we have a children's service. 12 o'clock, lunch fellowship. 1.30, we have college ministry. 4 o'clock, we have a teacher's debrief. And then 6 o'clock, we have teacher's prayer meeting that lasted for four hours. And I'll be at church from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. And we had such a strong emphasis on doing that we neglected being. And then I remember after that, I swung opposite to the other spectrum where I was just all about soaking. God, I just want to come into your presence and just soak. I don't need to do anything. I could just be here all day. I don't have to say hello to my neighbor. I don't have to serve in any ministry. I don't have to help anyone in my city. I could just come and be and rest and soak and just be a son. And being came at the expense doing. What we need is a life of doing that flows out of being. Hear me, church, our doing will only be as deep as our being, which is why being with Jesus and committing to becoming like Jesus are paramount in setting us up to do what Jesus did so well. To do without being disconnects us from our source of life and love. Pete Scazzaro, he wrote, and we're going to do a a collection later this year called The Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, where we're going to talk about how to pursue faith in an emotionally healthy way. And he he authored this book, and he, he, he says this. He says, work for God that is not nourished by a deep interior life with God will eventually deteriorate and us with it. That's wisdom right there. If the foundation of our lives are being with Jesus and becoming like Jesus. Every time we try to do what he did, we'll find ourselves destroying ourselves. Rich Villadas from that book, who got it? Yeah, it's going to be a good book. He says this, when we're doing without being, we're liable to serve in order to gain the approval of others lead to mask a deep sense of insecurity, volunteer to get God to love us more, start new things to prove our worth, and over-function, not giving adequate space for our own health, the list goes on. Sooner or later, the consequences of doing without being catch up to us, whether in the form of sickness, resentment, duplicity, or fatigue. Our engagement in the world becomes marked by a kind of scale obligation rather than joyful participation. Hear me, church. There's no worse witness to the world than Christians that drag their feet in duty and stale obligation. 
We are meant to live in joyful participation, not begrudging duty, but a joy to be able to partner with God in releasing his kingdom here on earth. Listen, engaging in the work of Jesus is meant to be an adventure, a joyful participation that fills us as much as we pour out. Doesn't that sound beautiful? Well, here at Church, you can't do it without first being with Jesus having a foundation of intimacy with the one that we are serving. I remember one important lesson God taught me in my life of ministry. He says, Mickey, lovers will always outwork servants. Lovers will always outwork servants. Carry the heart of love for me, not duty, because your love will carry you so much further. A joyful participation that fills us as much as we pour out. So doing flows from being. Number two, God uses imperfect, jacked up, messed up people. This is lie in the church that we have to have it all together to be used by God. Really? Um, I found this really funny quote that was quoted by unknown, so you know it's really good, right? It says this, Noah was a drunk Abraham was too old, Isaac was a daydreamer, Jacob was a liar, Joseph was abused, Moses had a stuttering problem, Gideon was afraid, Samson had long hair and was a womanizer, Rahab was a prostitute, Jeremiah and Timothy were too young, David was an adulterer and a murderer, Elijah was suicidal, Isaiah preached naked, hallelujah, Jonah ran from God, Naomi was a widow. Job went bankrupt. John the Baptist ate bugs. Peter denied Christ. The disciples fell asleep while praying for their friend. Martha worried about everything. The Samaritan woman was divorced. Zacchaeus was too small. Paul was too religious. Timothy had an ulcer. Did you know that? And last, Lazarus was dead. Listen, God has a track record of using broken, messed up people who are far from having it all together. You don't have to have it all figured out before you ask God to use you. He doesn't disqualify you for your weakness. Hear me, church. God's not looking for perfection. He's looking for a yes. He's not looking for strength. He's looking for a yes. He's not looking for success. He's looking for a yes. And that's good news as hell for someone like me because I am far from having it all together. I am far from perfect, but I swear to you that I have a yes. And I think all of us have at least a yes. Yes, God, use me to love those who are far from you at my job. Yes, God, use me to be an advocate to be oppressed in my city. Use me, God, to bless those who are suffering all around me. I don't know how you'll use me. I don't know if I'm even worthy to be used. I don't even know if all these pieces can be used together for your good, but I trust that you are the one that perfects me in my weakness. Use me, God. All we need to give him is a yes, God uses imperfect people. Last point. God is already at work, even before we do a single thing. I've gone on over 25 overseas mission trips in my life, been to many amazing places around the world, and God did some amazing things on those trips. But I can also recall how often I went to these countries and these places with the mentality that these people, they need us to come so that they can experience God. They need our ministry. They need our teaching. They need our leadership. And looking back, how arrogant 
was I to think that God would only move if we showed up the way that we knew him to move, as if God wasn't already doing something among the people that we were going to minister to just because it didn't look the way that I expected it to look. And so we often think that God is only working in people and places that mirror our belief systems, our values, and our expressions, but, but God is so much bigger. And I think one of the critiques of the modern-day missions movement for all the good that they've done is that they have this colonizing mindset oftentimes where somehow we have a monopoly on how God moves here in the West. And so we go to these cultures and we enforce our ways upon them. And we say, you should look like us. You should sing like us. You should dress like us. Instead of recognizing what God is already doing among them and saying, God, show me what you're doing. And instead of me pushing my ways, I want to actually weave myself into the thread of what you're already doing here among your people. We walk into neighborhoods with savior complexes and say, this is what they need. Instead of saying, God, I humbly come. I have nothing to give these people. I can't transform. I can't save no one. I can barely save myself. I can barely save enough money to get that thing that I want. I can't do anything. But you can. What are you already doing here beneath the surface, beneath the soil? John 5, 17 Jesus says, my father is always at his work to this very day. And I too am working. Nah, I didn't. I needed to hear, wow. My father is always at work to this very day. That means God is already actively engaged in the world, even in the people and places we feel are hopelessly void of God. God is working beneath the surface even there. God is working in that person that you swear is demon-possessed, that is just torturing your life. God is working in their hearts. God is working in that neighborhood that you would not dare step foot in because you're scared. God is working there. God is working in the places we feel that he's not. There's a, a Marvel show. I was talking to JP about this. Our favorite Marvel, one of our favorite Marvel shows on Disney Plus so far has been The Watcher. And basically the story and the lore behind the Watcher, he's this, this, this ethereal, eternal being that just watches everything in the universe unfold. But he has one rule. I am not going to get involved. I'm just going to watch. Hence his name, the Watcher. And so literally he's like an Enneagram type 5. He's just like just standing by and just watching and observing things play out in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He's just watching things happen, but he vows I will never get involved. He does get involved at the end. Spoiler alert, at the end of the season. But, a lot of us look at God and we say, God's like the watcher. He's standoffish. He's aloof. He's, he's not in the dirt with us. But, but God actively involves himself in our world. Hear me, church. There is never a moment when he isn't moving toward the world in love. And our role as followers of Jesus is to tap into that which he is already doing. Whenever we show up at a place, meet with the person, we should assume that God is already moving. That God is already moving in your workplace. God is already moving in your family. God is already moving in your neighborhood. And our role is to ask, God, what are you already up to here? And how can I be a part of it? What if we were able to discern God's presence instead of assuming his absence? 
How different would we walk our streets? How different would we walk into our workplace? How different would it be in our family, in our household, if we assumed that God is already working here? And so my mission now doesn't become, i got to be the Savior. i got to lead my family to Christ. Shoot, i got to change our whole workplace culture because it's toxic as hell right now. i got to do this. i got to clean up my gnome. I got, my job is to say, Holy Spirit, what are you already doing here? And how can I involve myself in humility, in listening, in, in participating with Emmanuel, God with us, instead of coming in guns blazing? Our role is to create space where God can do what only he can do, to tap into the work God is already engaged in, and ask how can we participate. And so as we pursue the mission of Jesus, the works of Jesus in our lives, in our modern-day context, doing flows out of being. God uses imperfect people, and God is already working. He's already moving. Church, what if we could be characterized as apprentices of Jesus that don't just pray, that don't just talk the talk, but we actually live out and walk what our rabbi did? What if we could be embodied by our works for justice, our works for being prophetic, our works for eating and drinking with those who are far from God? What if we could be known as people who actually do what Jesus did? Um, someone who really challenges me is this man named Shane Claiborne. And if you grew up in youth group during the time I did, he had this really cool book out um, about... He basically lived with home people who were living in homeless encampments under the bridge. And he's just spent time living there. And he, he gives this quote. He says this. When someone asks us if we are Christians, I think the best answer is to tell them to ask the poor, the incarcerated, the immigrants and refugees, the widows and the orphans, the least of these. They will tell you who the Christians are. Damn. That's, that's convicting. I don't know if you read that and it's convenient. It's challenging. What if we can embody the mission of Jesus in our lives? And so, as we get ready to conclude our collection, our formation, we're going to pursue this the entire year, but we just wanted to dedicate January to teaching about it. But let's, let's not just be a people who pray our prayers. Let's be a people who live and embody them. Let's actively involve ourselves in the works and the ministry of Jesus. So right now, I want to invite us into a time of response. Why don't we close our eyes? And I want to invite God to help us as we wrestle through this teaching. I feel like God wants to do a number of things here today. But right now, I just want to create space for God to speak to us and to move in our hearts. Holy Spirit, would you come right now? I think the last thing that I want to do is make this some religious obligation. Last thing I want to do is move people to compulsion and guilt. Like, I'm not doing enough. No, no, no. That's, that's not what you're doing here, Holy Spirit. What you're doing is showing us what a life lived with you. What a life dedicated to becoming like Jesus. What a life fully surrendered could look like. That we could actually be your hands and feet in our world. 
And we could actually do what you did, Jesus, while you were here on earth. I pray today that you would challenge us and convict us to want that, to want to be people who usher in your kingdom, in our cities, in our workplace, in our families, as it is in heaven. So speak to us right now. The first thing I want to speak to, I feel like so many of us have been burned and traumatized uh, by church service. Some of us have been hurt by our leaders. We felt used and overworked and burnt out. And the thing I want to encourage you with is there are seasons for everything. There are seasons where Jesus says, don't do anything. Don't lift a finger. you got to learn how to be. And I feel like there's a number of people in here, you've been so burned by serving God and serving your leaders and your churches and the kingdom and being all out for the gospel. And you've been burned and you're tired and you're weary. And I just want to tell you, God doesn't invite you into more work at this moment, in this season. He's inviting you into rest. He's saying, hey, there's a lot that you can do for my kingdom. But first, you need to know that you're a son. You need to know that you're a daughter. Listen, I would not. Zion just turned six months and he's not washing dishes yet. He probably ain't going to do that for many more years. He needs to learn how to be a son. He needs to learn that he's loved, not by what he does, but just because he's a relationship, just because he's already worthy of my love and affection. He needs to know that. And some of you, this season needs to be marked and characterized by learning how to be so that your doing can flow from your being. Right now, I speak to wounded hearts. I speak to those who have been burnt out, those who are tired and weary and disillusioned with this concept of doing and mission and kingdom. And I pray that you would give rest. That you would invite them into the place in your arms where they don't have to lift a single finger, but they're loved, cherished, and that's all they ever need to do and be. Would you release that, God, over the wounded, over the burned? But second, I feel there are some of you where God has just convicted you. I've been praying a lot of prayers, but I haven't been living them. I feel like some of you, today is marking a new season where God's saying, I want you to embody the prayers that you're praying. I don't want you to just pray for injustice in our nation. I want you to embody that prayer. I don't want you to just pray, God, help the needy in my city. I want you to embody that prayer. God, would you put this family back together? Would you mend these relationships? And God's saying, I don't want you to just pray that prayer. I want you to embody so God, would you stir those who are in a season where you're calling us to follow in your footsteps, to do what you've called us to do? Would you give us courage and would you remind us that you are already working and that we can hand in hand, step by step, in a rhythm with the God who can make all things new? Would you invite us into the work where your burden is easy and your yoke is light? Give us vision, God. Invite us in.